Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I have Dr. Marjorie Willicott on the show. I'm very excited about this interview. Marjorie has been on the show before talking about her her latest book, Infinite Awareness. And today she's going to be sharing her talk that she gave at the IONS International Association for Near-Death Studies um, this past this past year. Marjorie is an emeritus professor and prior chair of the Department of Human Physiology and the member of the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. She taught courses in neuroscience and rehabilitation as well as complementary medicine and meditation. She is president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and research director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IONS. Dr. Woolacott has received over $7.2 million in research funding for her research in child development, rehabilitation medicine, and most recently, meditation and spiritual awakening. Her latest book, Infinite Awareness, winner of eight awards, including the 2017 Parapsychological Association Book Award and the Eric Hopper Book Award and the Nautilus Book Award, pairs Marjorie's research as a neuroscientist with her self-revelations about the mind's spiritual power. Welcome back to the show, Marjorie. Thank you, Thank you Marla. It's so wonderful to wonderful to see you again. So let's let's talk about your your talk that you gave. I was just so impressed by it and very thought provoking. So with that said, let's start out with with the question. Okay, sure. I just want to mention. That- <laughs> At the beginning of that talk, I gave a question to the entire audience to try to like orient them to what I was going to be talking about. That's what I want to do for you and your listeners today. And so this is what I said. I said, I want you to take a brief moment and have you, and of course, I invite your listeners to do this too, to think about some experience you might have had. And perhaps it was out in nature, in the forest, or maybe it was in meditation that felt like a new level of understanding of the reality of who you are and what the world is about. And this is not just an intellectual understanding, but the accompanying feeling of that in your own body, like at an energetic level. Perhaps it might've been a sense of awe or perhaps a sense of an increased level of aliveness or a quickening of energy in the body that might've happened again during that moment in nature or in meditation. Spiritual awakenings may be powerful and they also may be subtle. And I want you to be aware that even if yours felt subtle to you, you were being in that moment often awakened to some new aspect of the world, some new worldview, and that is a true awakening. So right now I just want you to pause for a moment and if something comes to mind, Maybe you can share it with me. 
Well, I'll share one with you. Ready? This was Ready? so many years ago. I don't even know how old I was. Probably in my early 20s, if I was in my 20s. Anyway, I just remember lying in a field mm -hmm. with grass all over and it just being this beautiful, glorious, sunshining day in Indiana. And I just closed my eyes and I just opened my eyes up and it was just a sense of wonder and awe. And I, it's kept, stayed with me forever. And I've had many others in, in different situations, but that's the first one that I can, I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we can actually like push those aside as, oh, that really wasn't very important. But in fact, it is something that when you have that new sense of like, ah, as you were saying about the world and who you are in the world, it's often the beginning of a more and more um, expansion in our awareness as we move on in our lives. So I, I, I always like to honor those moments. So right, right. And I didn't um, at the thank you for asking that question. And I, I think you probably revisited at the end. But I wanted to let the listeners know what the title of your <laughs> talk <Yes>. is: <laughs> Powerful Spiritual Awakenings, Kundalini and Spiritual Evolution. Yes. So that is your title. So. Tell us about your kundalini experience. Sure. I know it's called many different things, and I'd like for you to talk about that, too. As well, yes. So in 1976 is when I had what I call a kundalini awakening. And it was an experience in meditation that opened up for me an awareness of a dimension of reality that I had never before experienced. I was invited by my sister to a meditation retreat by an Indian meditation master. And being a scientist, of course, I was skeptical, but I was also curious and I decided to attend. So the first morning of that retreat, it was announced that during the meditation session, the Swami was gonna be walking around the room and initiating every individual there. And the initiation was described as a spiritual awakening and it was to happen through the Swami's touch. Now, obviously the scientist in me was skeptical, but since I was there, I decided to put my skepticism aside for the weekend. And besides, I was curious to see what would happen. So when he reached me, I felt the Swami's thumb and fingers right between the eyes and on the bridge of my nose. I was alert, my eyes were closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So I had a sense of utter certainty about the event. It seemed as if a tiny lightning bolt leapt from his fingers to a point between my eyes and down to the center of my chest. I could feel that exact point where the energy stopped. And I knew it was my heart, not the physical heart, but parallel to the physical heart and more like a heart than my physical heart had ever been. And that energy that came from my heart radiated outward and it filled my whole being and beyond. It felt like nectar. It felt like pure love pouring through me. And words went through my mind that had nothing to do with scientific analysis. They were, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. And what was most astonishing for me was what happened afterwards. Without my effort or my even willing it, I made a 180 degree shift in my habits beginning the morning after I returned to my university position in Virginia. 
I got up at 5 a.m. spontaneously and I meditated. And it happened day after day after day. And in fact, it's never ceased. I did that knowing that just beneath the surface of my awareness simmered a quiet ecstasy. I tapped it once and I felt it was there waiting for me. Wow, that is beautiful. So it was there waiting for you. So, so what did you, what did you do with that? Here you're a neuroscientist surrounded, I assume by materialists and, and you went, if I remember correctly, thinking as the Swami walked up, I remember you saying, nothing's going to happen with me. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what did you do with that, that urge waiting for you? Well, what I found was that it actually caused me to start leading a dual life in a certain sense, in that every morning I was getting up, as I said, to meditate spontaneously. And yet at the university, I led my typical materialist university life with all of my friends that were my colleagues at the university. And what I found happened is that after a while, though I loved my meditation and I kept going into deeper states, I began to feel a little bit schizophrenic in the fact that I was leading one life at the university, doing my neuroscience research and the other life, meditating and talking to my friends who were meditating. And um, I wanted to begin to put the two halves of my life together. And that's when I finally began doing research at the university on meditation and on Tai Chi and on consciousness and whether consciousness itself can actually perhaps survive bodily death. Is consciousness perhaps a fundamental mental nature of reality? And is the material world perhaps just something that has contracted down from that ultimate consciousness? So those were the questions I began to ask in my laboratory. And then as I began to write my book, Infinite Awareness. It's so interesting how, interesting is not a good word, but how one experience can transform you. Very much like the near-death experiences that a lot of the different experiences. Wow. So tell us a little bit about what is a Kundalini awakening? I mean, in terms of what other cultures, different names and that sort of thing. Sure. So actually experts in the subject, and these are from, again, all the different cultures that I will uh, mention, India, China, Japan, Europe, etc., all say that a Kundalini awakening is an energetic awakening that gives us access to a higher consciousness. And it causes an immediate change at some seed level in our understanding of reality, in our worldview. So that seed is planted within us. And then at some level, we now know that consciousness is fundamental to reality. In addition, at least to this gradual process of transformation in our behavior, how our actions manifest in the world, and in some cases, this might occur very quickly, and in others, it occurs gradually over a long period of our life. And eventually, it might result in either a career change or in an integration of our new understanding into our current career. Like we might become a more compassionate doctor, for example. So that energetic awakening actually has different names in many, many different traditions. And so in India, it is called the Kundalini awakening. In China and Japan, it's often called the chi or the ki, an awakening of the chi or the ki. In Christian traditions, it's often called the descent of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And today I'm gonna be focusing specifically on India. And according to that tradition, 
this infinite and universal loving consciousness that has always existed out of its own free will and enjoyment creates the world so that it can know and experience itself in all the different forms of the world. And in doing so, it conceals its essential infinite nature as it becomes all the finite individual cells in all of the beings in the world that is in us as well. So I love that concept that here we have this infinite awareness, this infinite consciousness that says, I want to know myself. So let me actually come into a material realm and create myself in all these different ways so that I, as each one of the individual cells, can know myself as all the other individual cells in nature and in humanity and animals, et cetera. So then the term Kundalini refers to that all-encompassing consciousness that's said to live within each human being, but in the seed form, in this dormant state after our birth. So we live in ignorance of our true nature as universal consciousness. However, at a certain point in our evolution, the Kundalini is reawakened through what I would call cosmic grace, and our ignorance of our true nature is then removed. And once that energy is awakened, we recognize at this deep level who we really are, like that seed has now been planted and then transformation begins. And it's described as coming through a purification of our misconceptions of who we are as the energy begins to move through the channels or the centers of our subtle body. Wow. I know you did a study with some colleagues when you sent out a questionnaire asking about the physical changes and the shifts in consciousness. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and share a few of the answers that, that you received from, from some of those people? Sure, sure, I can. Yes, so um, after I'd had my own experiences I ended up really being intrigued by what was going on with these Kundalini awakenings. And I had been reading classic experiences, et cetera. And I realized there was limited research out there in the area, but I was very intrigued by the phenomenon. So I was very happy when Yvonne Quezon and Russell Park invited me to collaborate with them on publishing data that they'd collected over a number of years on Kundalini awakening through their questionnaires. Now, the purpose of the study was to collect detailed descriptions of both the physical experiences and the shifts in consciousness of the persons having that spiritual awakening. And we used an interview questionnaire. Now, there were 342 participants from a variety of countries, and they included North America, Europe, Asia. And our first question for everybody was this, what were the characteristics of your Kundalini awakening experiences? And now the answers from our participants included things like they were mystical experiences with feelings of expansion, including conscious awareness leaving the body, and the sense perhaps of being enveloped in light or love. And they occurred in various circumstances. For example, they could occur spontaneously during the day or the night or during meditation. They might happen in an initial experience of meditation or after the result of intense practice. And the persons might have initially been elated or frightened. And in the long term, they reported great benefits, including a sense of peace, of joy, and often unity awareness. And here are just some descriptions from the participants in our study. First is an example of a spontaneous awakening from a 41-year-old man. He says, I awoke from sleep with a droning sound in my head, and my body was vibrating 
He said this increased to a thunderous roar and electricity began pulsating throughout my body. He said colors were very pronounced and my body was actually sliding across the bed. And he said, I felt fear at first, but then utter joy and peace. He said, I basked in that feeling for 45 minutes and then I broke down in tears of joy. Afterwards, he said, I had no fear of death and the vibrations lingered for weeks. He said, I had several episodes for months afterwards, which were coupled with out-of-body sensations and experiences. He says, this transformed his personality in a positive way. It was an inspiration in times of trouble. It led to gifts of creativity and increased altruism in his life as well. And now here's a second example of one that happened during a woman's first meditation. She says, I followed my teacher's instructions and I meditated for 20 minutes. I came out of the building afterward into the summer sunshine and I saw the world totally differently. The sky was bluer, the sun was brighter, the birds were louder, the grass was greener. It was as if a veil or a screen had been lifted and I could see forever into the universe clearly. No stress, she said. I was one with the sky, the clouds, the whole universe. And she said, it grew stronger every day. She says her present experience is often one of unity consciousness, the oneness of all creation. And she says the awareness of the finest particle structure of creation is what she often sees. She may see people made of light rather than as a solid structure. And she says she's aware of the oneness of all things, the oneness of all forms like plants. She can feel their energy fields and she can feel animals' psychic abilities. She says auras sometimes are seen and she feels everything subtly. It has a certain inner knowingness to it when she actually experiences things. She knows things before they happen. And you might wonder what on earth triggers these experiences. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think that's an interesting question because I think sometimes people think, well, I would like to have one of those awakenings too. And maybe by learning what triggers them, we can understand more about it. So they might be more systematically actually awakened in people. So first of all, here's what we know from that study that we did. Thinking about spiritual issues was the most prevalent trigger of those awakenings in 41%, almost half of the participants. Wow. And this was followed by being in the presence of a spiritually developed person in like 34%, about a third of the people. So just being with someone is important. And that reminds us that this energy is almost catching so that when you're around an enlightened or a highly developed being, you can experience a sense of their state. Also, intense meditation and prayer were high on the list in about 30% and 25% of the people, respectively, telling us that the intensity of our spiritual practice contributes to the likelihood of the awakening of this energy. And it's interesting to me that breath work and yoga can trigger the awakening. And sometimes I think certain teachers of yoga use this in their teaching, possibly for that reason. They know the power of breath work and of hatha yoga. Finally, I want you to note that near-death experiences and severe physical illness also trigger awakenings because this reminds us that these awakenings may happen when we're very close to death. And as the ego lets go of control, our ordinary perceptual brain filters are diminished and then a higher awareness is experienced. Wow. 
So what about, well, first of all, the people that took the questionnaire, were they all across the board in terms of their religious or no religious beliefs? Absolutely. So what we found is that um, people often were, in fact, even atheists before the experience happened, um, yeah. very often agnostic. And um, some of them had backgrounds in, for example, Christianity, others in backgrounds in Indian traditions. Some of them were people that did Hatha yoga the very first time these things happened to them. And so I think the sense is that once the awakening happens, you can incorporate it into your current um, spiritual um, philosophy and or religion, if that really works for you. For some people, they realized that their religion was constricting them a bit and their awakening made them want to become more spiritual and let go of some of the dogma that they had had all of their lives because they realized that all religions appeared to have this wonderful common aspect of this mm -hmm. higher awareness in the mystics of all those religions. So I think they came from many, many different backgrounds and they often went to this higher understanding of the universal nature of these truths. Interesting. Have you had another awakening since 1976, like similar to that? You know, what I had is that, I should say that was with my very first meditation teacher in 1976, Swami Muktananda, and he then passed away in 1982, and he had then passed on the power of this lineage of Indian masters to a woman, um, and her name um, um, is Gurumai Chidvalasananda, and after about a year or two, I was taking a meditation retreat with her. And I had, again, a very, very powerful experience in meditation. And it was one in which I could feel as I went into meditation, my awareness going into this place of velvety blackness that was like the most exquisite place in the whole world down deep inside of like my own being, my own heart. And as that happened, I began to feel just a sense of incredible love pouring through me. And I remember being in that meditation for about an hour or more, just like totally relishing that experience of stillness inside of myself and the sense of expanded love and awareness. And what was interesting for me is that after that meditation session was over, we had a lunch pause and I went up on the roof of this particular building where we were having the meditation retreat um, to have my lunch. And as I was walking back down toward the program, I happened to pass my meditation teacher as she was going up and I was going down. And she stopped at that moment and she began a conversation with me. And she said, you know, um, how are you doing and things like that. And I had this sense as I was then telling her about my wonderful experience at the retreat that it was as if she could tell by looking at me that something had shifted inside of me. And that was what allowed her to stop in that moment and, and then have a conversation with me about what she could experience in my own state at that moment. And I think that's the amazing thing that meditation does and that more developed spiritually enlightened masters can do. It's like they really can sense the mental awareness of other people, the state of other people and respond to it in the perfect way. I would assume, and we're gonna talk about Bruce Grayson's work in, in a minute, um, but I would assume that once one has an awakening like this, they become so much more open to having more awakenings. And what about abilities like psychic abilities or, or things like that? Oh, definitely. I think that was the other interesting part of our own um, study is that we basically had asked people 
about those things? And did they have more psychic abilities? And we found fantastic information about that sort of thing. I remember that in one case, um, people um, made comments about the fact that their creativity was increased, not only their psychic abilities, their health was increased. And I was so impressed that all of those things came about through that initial awakening. Right. So I think um, it's a phenomenal um, thing to actually realize can happen to us. And in your talk, you referred to Dr. Grayson and com comparing, I guess, the NDE experience and shared death yes. with, with the Kundalini. So can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, first of all, he's often called the father of near-death experience research because he's been doing this for like the last probably 30 or 40 years. And yeah. So he has so many studies. And he also wanted to know when he was early on in his research, in fact, if kundalini awakening might be a factor underlying mystical experiences like NDEs that transform the life of the experiencer. And so he asked, can NDEs actually awaken the spiritual energy within? So he developed a kundalini scale and he showed a clear behavioral transformation that was associated with those energetic awakenings in NDEs. These are very similar to classic Kundalini experiences and transformations. In fact, he considers Kundalini to be the bioenergy that drives human evolution. Now in his study, he compared people with an NDE to those who were close to death, but without an NDE, and also to those who had never ever been close to death. And he found that those with NDEs have Kundalini awakenings about twice as often as those who didn't. And the Kundalini sensations included in these people with NDEs feelings just like with a regular Kundalini awakening, extreme heat, um, feelings of heat through the body and um, in the body, hearing internal sounds. People would hear like a whistling or a roaring or maybe flute-like sounds or seeing internal lights and colors. And interestingly, they also had motor experiences. And these included things like their breath suddenly spontaneously stopping or becoming rapid or very shallow or very deep. And also interestingly, the body could assume unusual positions like Hatha yoga postures, as if this, this like enlivened energy was very wise and could put your body into the right places in the right positions that would actually allow the energy to flow better. And so Bruce Grayson then concluded that NDEers are reporting precisely the kind of physiological changes that are associated with Eastern traditions, with the bioenergy that drives human evolution. So we know that NDEs can create the equivalent of a Kundalini awakening. Interesting. You talked about the study at Yale about what happens to the brain during one of these awakenings. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I, so being the researcher that I am, I was very intrigued <laughs> to know if there are changes that we can actually see in the brain when we go into these more mystical states. So we don't have specific research on Kundalini awakening yet, but we do know that what happens during mystical experiences in meditation can be very much like that. So let me first give you some background on our ordinary or what I call our default mode of our brain functioning. So in normal everyday awareness, as we go about our routine, this default mode network, or also it's called the mind wandering network of our brain is dominant in all of our thought processes. And this network is the source of our ego identity that really is the identity that creates all the stories about who we are and how we relate to the world. 
Now, its main influence is to filter out a broader perceptual awareness. So what that means is the more we're involved in our egoic narrative, the less we see of the real nature of the world around us. And I give this example because it happens to me all the time. You might experience it when you're going out for a walk and suddenly you realize you haven't noticed anything around you for the last minute or two because you've been lost in some internal dialogue. Might be with your spouse or with your child or with somebody else or just um, contemplating some problem in your life. And so that's what we're talking about. There is this central default mode network in our brain that can actually take over our whole perceptual awareness. And all we hear is our own internal narrative. So before our awakening, that brain network is very active. But in a kundalini awakening, it appears to actually change the dominance of that default mode network of our brain, and it becomes largely deactivated, especially in deep meditation and in mystical states. So let me tell you about that study that showed these significant reductions in two primary nodes of this default mode network of our brain during mystical experiences of meditation. Now they're the medial prefrontal cortex, which is right in the very front of your cortex here. And then also something called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is right about here. And now this is that study by Judson Brewer and his colleagues from the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. So in the study, they made brain imaging scans of activity in this default motor narrative network in advanced meditators versus control participants who were brand new to meditation as they meditated. And they found that these main nodes of the default mode network were relatively deactivated in the meditators compared to the controls who didn't know how to meditate. Mm -hmm. So this shows us that the brain truly becomes quite still in meditation as that narrative part of the brain is silenced. And I propose that this stilling of our narrative mind happens in Kundalini awakening and actually allows these subtler perceptions to come through our awareness that are normally filtered out. That is the perceptions that mystical experiences are made of. And I think this actually then relates back to our own study on Kundalini awakening when we were looking at what you were talking about of the creativity, um, the healing abilities and the psychic abilities and their general sensitivity increasing. So we were wondering about whether these Kundalini awakenings are actually simply um, perhaps like peak experiences where they are there for a moment, but then they fade after a time or whether these really transform our lives and if so, how they do it. So as you were asking about, we looked at creativity, at health, at healing, psychic abilities, and this is what we found. We found that creativity increased in about 60% of our participants and also the capacity to heal and the presence of psychic abilities increased in about 50 to 65%. And interestingly, this is something I laugh at because I've noticed it in myself, participants noticed that their proximity began to have an impact on electrical devices. Okay. And people would actually humorously say that they would be walking under a street lamp and it would begin to flicker <laughs> and they would notice their watches would stop or they'd have trouble with other electronic things. And that happened in, again, a large number of people, 50 to 65%. And others said that, in fact, this was 50%, their general overall health improved. So the question is, what does that mean in our lives? Mm. And here's some examples of how the participants described how the awakening meaningfully created changes in their lives. Regarding creativity, which included writing and art and poetry, one person said that her present experience is one of periods of intense creativity every few months. 
And she said that during this time, she's obsessed usually in writing poetry. And she said she can barely do anything else. And then regarding psychic abilities, another one said, I can read the future and heal with my hands. She said, I'm able to see auras around people and tell them some of their gifts through the information their guide gives me. And she says, as I read these, I feel joy in what I am, am able to give to them. And I also found as I was reading these particular examples from the participants that I had a sense of a newfound um, joy in hearing about their healing, their psychic and their creative abilities, all that come from the awakening of this energy within. So how did, with all of these positive changes, how, how did it change you, neuroscientist Marjorie Wollacott? Yeah. yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think that first of all, I definitely noticed there was an increase in my own creativity. And I, I, I laugh about this. And that is that <laughs> when I was um, first doing my research, living my two separate lives of doing my neurological um, rehabilitation research in my lab and doing my meditation on the side and taking my retreat, retreats, I was enjoying my research. I love being a rehabilitation neuroscientist. And I should say, I have a textbook in that area that's in its sixth edition that's still out there um, for physical therapists and occupational therapists around the world. Wow. Um, it's published in lots of different languages. And at the same time, what happened to me when I began toward the end of my career, realizing I could do research in my own laboratory on meditation and consciousness and near-death experiences, I, I found this incredible joy now in moving into this area of research. And I find that I like to do it, you know, whether it's it's um, time to um, actually be doing it during the day or whether it's on the weekend. I'm constantly now immersed in learning more about spiritual awakenings and about the fundamental nature of consciousness. So I think my creativity has just blossomed in those areas now that I can give myself more time for it as I'm beginning to um, move toward that retirement. So I really appreciate that. Right. How did your colleagues when you first started, when you finally merged the two, the materialists and, and bringing in these studies into the university, how, how was that accepted or was it? Well, I mean, it's an interesting point. And I think that, you know, I've asked this of a lot of people, not only thinking about it myself, and I'll give you my own answer and those of many of my colleagues yeah. who have had somewhat similar awakenings. The first is that when you first have had an awakening, you want to tell the whole world, it's like, wow, you won't believe this. And then you realize that the veil sort of rolls down over people's eyes and they just sort of like back off a little bit because <laughs> you're just strange according to their own reality system that they have, which is usually a materialist reality system. So you learn to be very, very quiet and make perhaps a subtle mention and see how the person response. And then, you yes. know, and, and so I would say that most of my colleagues were absolutely not interested. And I learned that quickly and that was fine. But I do remember that finally, um, closer to the end of my career, I was a full professor now, and I wanted to start teaching our pre-med students things about complementary and alternative medicine, such as energy healing, for example, and meditation and yoga and Tai Chi. And so I asked my department chair if I could teach a course in alternative and complementary medicine to our senior and junior um, pre-med majors in our human physiology department. And the department chair said, oh no, he said, none of our majors will be interested in that at all. He said, if you want to teach a course like that, you should teach it to non-majors, you know, those freshmen out there in the other parts of the university. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I want to actually talk about the research on energy medicine and does it work or not? And I said, you know, a, a non-major would not even understand the research. So he said, well, okay, I'll do a compromise with you. You can teach it one term 
and we'll see how it goes. And of course, what happened was that as soon as they opened up registration for the course, it filled instantly. And then they had like an overflow. And in fact, of course, it was supposed to have only 30 students in it. They allowed 50 students to come in with my permission because so many people that were pre-med majors wanted to take it. And I want to say that it was a wonderful experience because my pre-med majors were skeptical when they came in because they were taught material science, all of their training, you know, in chemistry and biology and um, biochemistry, et cetera. And now I was asking them to look at research on things like, for example, um, energy medicine on things like homeopathy, on meditation, does it actually um, help things? And what we found was that when the students began to then write a paper on what were the research studies that showed that this worked versus not worked and what would be their recommendations for actually teaching something like this in a medical school setting, they actually now believed in the efficacy of these things because they had finally had the curiosity in the course to look at the research. And a few of those students shifted from being just a pre-med major to adding in things like perhaps um, energy medicine or other types of medicine that are more complementary into their program or going, for example, into a naturopathic school of medicine. So it was wonderful to see those changes in my own students. Uh, that is so exciting because it's so needed. Yes. You know, our, our medical world is as wonderful as, as it is the complimentary, the, the energy work is just so important and yeah. so needed. Well, Marjorie, thank you so much for coming, coming on the show today. And do you have any, um, any words of wisdom? <laughs> Don't you always love that? Yes, right. love that question. Well, and I should say that as I summarized when I was talking to the people yes. in the science, um, symposium, I said, experiences of Kundalini actually appear to open a doorway to a higher awareness. Mm. And I think they do it through the stilling of our brain activity in that default mode or mind wandering network. That's the basis of our limited egoic identity. And I believe that that in that moment that literally the seed is planted of a new understanding of reality being much broader than we really thought it was, much more expanded. It's a new world view that then we begin to step into over time. And I believe that seed then grows gradually bit by bit into this widespread transformation in our lives. It includes the things we talked about, increases in creativity, in healing powers. And also, I think most importantly, in an increased love for our fellow human beings, for the animals and the plants of our planet and for the planetary system and the universe itself. And I think we start taking responsibility for how we can make sure that our planet thrives and that we don't put it into um, serious um, negative consequences by our own actions. So I think it wakes us up to the sacredness of everything around us. And now we want to do everything we can to nourish everyone and everything in the world. Thank you. Uh, I have found that when you do become, begin a meditation practice and become really aware of that mind wandering because so many spend every single waking moment in that mind wandering loop. I remember you called it at one point. And when you can just quiet yourself and, and be present on a, on a regular basis, it just, it just changes everything, just as you're saying, along with these awakenings. 
Well, and I even will then just add, I should mention that I'm now actually conducting a study of scientists and academics who have had these spiritual awakenings. And I'm asking them to fill out a similar sort of questionnaire. And it's marvelous to hear what the scientists and the academics have to say, because often they were materialists before that awakening happened. And I liked what one man said, which relates to what you just said. He said, what I've finally learned from this path of my spiritual awakening is that I used to think that the goal of spirituality was different from the path itself. And he said, now I understand that the process of quieting the mind, of staying in the present moment is exactly the same as the goal. So simply being present and being absorbed in what is happening right now as much as we can is in fact what we are searching for. And that is the end as well. Well, thank you so much. And if people would like to find you, um, how would they do that? They can certainly go to my website, which is marjoriewolacott.com, just spelling my last name correctly, W-O-O-L-L-A-C-O-T-T. And also then um, there are places where they can actually send a letter to me that comes to me by email if they have any questions to ask of me. And of course, if they've read my book and have any questions yes. about the book, I'm happy to communicate with them. That would be great. Well, thank you so much. It was such an honor and such important information for the world. Thank you, Marla. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.